Hopefully this isn't regularly the case, but have you ever found someone who hates you without a reason? Sometimes it's a bad first impression. Sometimes it's a failure on our part at some point that we've done something. Sometimes there's really no reason, but that person just sort of has it out for you and they want to see you fail. In David's case, we don't know all of the historical details of Psalm 7, but going on the assumption that the title is correct and given the content of some of the things that he talks about in this psalm, it's likely that David had an active enemy who was stirring up, most likely Saul, to go after David. The reason for thinking that is that it is a psalm of David uh, concerning Cush, a Benjamite. What tribe was Saul from? He was of the tribe of Benjamin. And so whether this individual was actively trying to uh, accuse David in Saul's presence or whether he was hostile toward David because he was a distant relative of Saul and Saul was trying to kill David. We don't know those details, but it seems that there is a uh, connection here between uh, David's earlier life and the opposition that he faced and this particular psalm. Why did Saul oppose David? He had a number of reasons for doing so. He was jealous of David, both in terms of his military conquest in which God had blessed him, and of the fact that as time went on, David was chosen as the one who had replaced Saul. Saul was aware of this. This made him very angry, and he turned against David in connection with all of these things and tried on a number of occasions to, to kill him and, and harassed him for a number of years, chasing him around the country. Assuming that this person was speaking to Saul about David, that I'm sure that we've all had that experience, that there is someone, maybe a boss who has a family member in the business that they listen to more than you, uh, maybe a family member who is closer to another relative than you and, and says things that sway their opinion of you. Regardless of the specific circumstances, some point or another, we face opposition from people who accuse us falsely. What should our response be? This mirrors some of the other psalms that we've looked at over the last few weeks, and especially in the first response that we see here in the first few verses, and that is to cry to God. O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me, or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. In this case, crying to God means acknowledging God as your security. The reason that I say that is if you look in the first phrase there, he describes God as, O Lord, my God. This would be in contrast to places where people would say, pray to your God for me. Instead, this is David acknowledging that the Lord was his God, and so he's crying out to him. Furthermore, God was his refuge. He says, in you I have taken refuge. Uh, if you're in a terrible storm, you want to find shelter from the rain, whether that be in a building or in a cave or if it's a lot of lightning, not under a tree, something that will give you some refuge from the storm. And this is the imagery that David is using here to describe his cry to God. He says, I'm secure in you. I've taken refuge in you. Then he asks God for his help. He says, save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. Now, the save me is, of course, a cry for help, 
but it's probably not in this case a cry for help in terms of physical salvation. In the Old Testament, we see this word save, and because in the church, we've taken it to mean saved from sin, that might be the meaning that we would want to put on this, but in context, this would be David asking God to save his physical life from the opposition of his enemies. And when it says, deliver me, that would obviously be a, a kind of a parallel here. We see this often in poetry. You have different kinds of parallelism between the first part of the phrase and the second part of the phrase. Sometimes it's synonymous. This is the same kind of idea as this. Sometimes it's contrasting. This is a different idea than this. Sometimes one builds upon another. You have a statement and then another statement that adds to it, and then a third statement that adds to it. We see this a lot of times in Psalms and in other poetical sections of Scripture. Here, I think, he's saying a synonymous thing. Save me from those who pursue me. Deliver me. Then he explains the danger that it is that he faces. Look at verse 2. Or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. Again, when he says soul... He is probably referring to his person. He's probably not primarily referring to his eternal soul, although the two are not disconnected. He's saying, this person is going to attack me like a lion. David certainly was experienced with what this would have been like. What came to attack him when he was shepherding the sheep? A lion, a bear, and God's strength. He defeated both those enemies and... He was delivered. And so he's saying, in the same way, Lord, that you delivered me from the lion, from the bear, from the Philistines, from various other dangers, deliver me once again. So our first response should be to cry to God. But interestingly, in this psalm, we see in verses 3 to 5, there is also a need to evaluate ourselves. O Lord my God, if I have done this, what is the this he's referring to? The this seems to be the thing that he was being accused of, whether it was before Saul or just generally, someone has started a rumor, it appears, about David. If I have done this, and he's going to outline what it is, and then outline what the result should be if he has, in fact, done this. When we are accused of something, our gut reaction is to say, you're crazy, that's not true, don't ever say that again. We become very defensive. And if it's someone who has an unjustified opposition or hatred toward us, that's not an unreasonable response because there may be no basis whatsoever for what it is that they're saying. And yet, I think that there is a, the reality that at least in our own lives, if not in the context of this psalm, we should consider, is there any basis or, or, or truth to the accusation that's being made? Is there something that I need to examine about my own heart and life because I know that I'm a sinner? Humility demands us to evaluate ourselves. We still sin even as followers of God. We can be blind to that sin. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And so we must reflect on our sinfulness. Now we can fall into various ditches as we do this. We can get mired in it and just have this sort of self-pity. We can dwell on it and it leads us back into sin again, that's not the, the sort of attitude that I'm talking about. What I am is saying is that we should have a sort of self-reflection that acknowledges that because I'm a sinner and sometimes I'm not always aware of it, maybe someone else has noticed something in me that I need to consider in my own heart and life. 
David's going to say that that is not the case, but I think we should at least consider it. I think we need to ask God to help us to evaluate this. Verse 3, he's not necessarily talking to the people around him. He's saying, oh Lord my God, if I have done this. He's saying, God, you're my witness. Have I done this? Help me to see it to a certain extent. And what is it that he was saying he might have done? Generally speaking, do I deserve this difficulty if there is injustice in my hands? This idea of justice is going to come up a number of times in this psalm, as well as related ideas like vindication and judgment and evaluation and all of those sorts of things. So here's the question. Is there a sense in which I have behaved unjustly and at some level deserved the circumstance in which I find myself? What specifically would it be that he was accused of or specific examples that he gives of injustice? If I have rewarded evil to my friend. Now, friend here in context was probably has more the sense of ally. In other words, if there are nations, David was a king, if there are nations and they are next to each other or uh, consider David at some points actually allied himself even with the Philistines, if there is a period of peace between two armies, two nations, two people, and the one attacks the other one without cause, being in a state of peace, we would recognize that there's something wrong with that, right? And so David is saying that would have been to behave unjustly, to attack someone without a reason. Or, and the second phrase is rendered differently according to the translation that you have. The King James takes it as a sort of a parenthetical statement. I have delivered the one who was unreasonably my adversary would be kind of a paraphrase of the way that the King James takes it. In other words, David, in the midst of his uh, statement of innocence, is sort of interjecting this. Not only have I not done this, I even spared the one who did deserve my attack because he had been coming after me. I think that that certainly fits with the example in David's life of when he and Saul were in the cave and he spares Saul's life. Saul's trying to kill him. David is so overcome by the fact that he even cut the corner off the king's robe that he said, I shouldn't have even done that. He had a very clear sense of right and wrong that God would deal with Saul in his own time and those sorts of things. So to be accused of having rewarded evil to his friend, he says, I don't even do that to my enemies. Or as the Nasby takes it, and a number of other of the more recent translations, or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary. The, it, it weakens the force of it, but it still upholds the parallel. Both are legitimate ways to translate it. I've plundered him who without cause was my adversary. In other words, if I've attacked my, in, my friends, or even those who deserve it, what response could God take toward him. Verse 5, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. And so I think we need to acknowledge actual guilt. If there is a case in which we sin, we are guilty to the extent that these punishments would be fitting. What are they? Again, pursue my soul, my life, my person and overtake me. Let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. If I have behaved 
unjustly and betrayed following you, God, there's a sense in which I deserve punishment, betrayal, even death, which mirrors the sort of betrayal that I have done to this other person. And yet, but look at verse 5. Why is it significant for him to be punished? What does sin lead to? Sin leads to punishment. Why is it significant for his life to be trampled to the ground? Because sin leads to death. And why is it significant that his glory would be laid in the dust? Because sin leads to shame. All of these are natural consequences of sinful behavior, which I think is why he describes it in this way. And yet David is going to make the statement that I have not done this. He's going to say this particularly in verse 8, which we're getting to next. David had confidence that these accusations were unjust. They were false. There was no basis in them. What I'm saying by way of application is, in cases where we're not sure, have I in fact behaved in this way? We ought to examine ourselves. But David has the sense that he has done rightly. And so not only does he cry to God, not only does he examine himself, but having examined himself, he seeks vindication. Vindication is one of those words we don't use in everyday conversation, but it's a good word for us to think about. It's a little bit like the idea of a criminal who's on death row, falsely accused, and then 10 years later, new evidence comes to life, light, and they realize that they have the wrong person, and he's released. He's set completely free. Not just pardoned, but you were never really guilty. The difference, I think, the parallel breaks down because there's always going to be that question in the back of people's minds, did he actually do it, the thing that he was accused of? In this case, the one who's evaluating him is not other people, it's God. And David's going to say, God knows my heart. In the sight of God, I haven't done any of these sorts of things. And so God is going to show by delivering me that these accusations are false, they have no basis, they're going to fall to the ground, and God's going to show himself powerful on my behalf. He says this in verses 6 through 9, God is the one who's going to evaluate. This setting is sort of a, a courtroom of the nations, if you will. God evaluates the urgent cry of the one who, fo- who follows him. Look at verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. And so David's saying, God, I'm being unjustly accused. I need your help. Arise in your anger. Lift yourself up against the rage of the adversaries. So if we have this idea, God's rage versus man's rage, which will prevail? Remember back to Psalm 2. God laughs at the futile attempts of the nations to overthrow his purpose, to reject those that he has chosen. In the Old Testament context, God appointed David as king. And even though potentially when he writes this, he is not yet king, God's hand is upon him. He is a man of God. And the accusations, the anger, the opposition of David's enemies would be overcome. And so David's saying, God... If it's going to be anger against anger, not my anger, but your anger will prevail against them. He says, arouse yourself for me. Stir yourself up. This is in contrast to the idea that we see in Elijah. Baal, your God, has gone on a trip. He had to take a bathroom break. He's asleep. Our God's not like that. When our God rises up, 
the earth shakes, nations fall. It's not a question of whether God is capable. It's not a question of whether God hears. It's a question of whether we come before him rightly. He says, you have appointed judgment. God is the one who is the judge. God is the one who's going to hear the case. God is the one who's going to render this judgment. Not only that, but God evaluates as the judge of all the people. It's, and, and this is where David sort of broadens the scope of what it is that he's saying. It, up to this point, it's sort of been, God, evaluate me. Now it's sort of, God, you're not just the judge of my, me and what I do. You're the judge of the entire earth. Look at what happens in verse 8. The Lord judges the peoples. Or verse 7. Let the assembly of the peoples encompass you. Over them return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. God is the one who doesn't just judge David. He doesn't just judge Saul. He doesn't just judge this person over here or even just the nation of Israel. He judges the entirety of the nations of the earth. Sometimes there's a question when someone is accused of a crime of what judge they will receive, whether it's a judge that's lenient, whether it's a judge that's harsh, whether it's a judge that can be bribed. In this case, there is no question whatsoever about the character of or the performance of the judge that David is calling to hear his case. What is his plea? He's asking God, evaluate me based on my innocence. Even as you do all people, vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous, for the righteous God tries the heart and minds my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. As we look at this, we're taken aback for a moment because we have this sense, I'm a sinner. How can I be that bold before God to say, God, hear my case, declare me innocent when I know in some way I'm always going to be guilty at some level? There's a couple of responses to that. Um, there's a commentary by a fellow named James Montgomery Boyce, and I like the way that he put it here. He said, The second surprising feature of Psalm 7, which is also a problem for us, is David's appeal to God for justice in verses 6 through 9. David is not pleading for any third party. He is pleading for himself. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity. And his cry is urgent. In my opinion, this is a point at which C.S. Lewis makes an important contribution. Let me preface this by saying I'm not fully persuaded by this argument, but I think it's helpful for us to all think about. So that's why I'm reading it for you. In his reflections on the Psalms, Lewis begins by distinguishing between two kinds of justice. Ultimate or heavenly justice, which is most commonly in the Christian's mind when he considers justice, and limited or earthly justice, which was the primary preoccupation of the Jew. These two understandings produce two different attitudes toward judgment. On the one hand, the Christian trembles at the thought of God's judgment because he thinks of himself as the defendant and knows that he is not innocent. Apart from the substitutionary atonement of Christ, he knows that he stands to be condemned. The Jew, thinking of earthly justice, does not tremble at judgment, but seeks or desires it. What is more, he does not think of himself as the defendant, he is the plaintiff. The Christian hopes for acquittal or a pardon. The Jew hopes for a resounding triumph with heavy damages. 
When justice is distinguished in this way, Christians naturally embrace the more recent and perhaps higher conception. But Lewis rightly asks us to yearn for earthly justice also and work for it. Now, I'm not sure that I agree with where he goes with that because then he sort of goes off on a bit of a tangent of, and then it's our job to solve the problems of all oppressed peoples everywhere. Although it is helpful for us to consider because in a nation where justice is rarely bought out by bribes and generally speaking trials are fair, it's hard for us to conceive of a circumstance in which you will not win your case unless you bribe the judge and the police officers and everybody else associated with the trial, as is the experience in various countries. So that's hard for us to conceive of, and we would do well to consider that. And so to that extent, I agree with him. And yet, let me continue reading. There is another issue, and this is earthly justice ourself, is it not true that the preoccupation with a final heavenly judgment at which we hope to be acquitted through the work of Christ has often made us indifferent to the need for justice now? I think it has. Even more, we have sometimes focused on the importance of a forgiving attitude in this life to the detriment of actually working for justice. Lewis gives an illustration. He imagines two boys fighting over a pencil. The question whether the disputed pencil belongs to Tommy or Charles is quite distinct from the question of which is the nicer little boy. And the parents who allowed the one to influence their decision about the other would be very unfair. It would be still worse if they said Tommy ought to let Charles have the pencil whether it belonged to him or not because this would show he had a nice disposition. That may be true, but it is an untimely truth. An exhortation to charity should not come as a writer to a refusal of justice. It is likely to give Tommy a lifelong conviction that charity is a sanctimonious dodge for condoning theft and whitewashing favoritism. What's he saying? Because we have the perspective that Jesus has called us to forgive, and he has, and that God will ultimately deal with all wrongs, and he will, sometimes we think that that means that it doesn't really matter whether justice gets accomplished in the present time. And he's making the argument that he would say parallels the argument that David is making, which is it does matter. If I'm falsely accused, it is right and proper for God to judge those who are making this false accusation. And it doesn't necessarily, in every circumstance, have to wait until the millennial kingdom or the end times for God to judge and sort all of these things out. Sometimes it does wait till then in God's purpose and God's plan, but it doesn't always. And so I think that while I wouldn't agree in every point with what I was just reading, I think it's helpful for us to consider, is it right and proper to seek justice in this life? Is it right for us to seek to be vindicated? Whether we distinguish earthly from heavenly justice, these are my words, not his, since they are closely related. You can't have one without the other. You can't have earthly justice without cosmic or eternal justice from God's perspective. We ought to have a concern to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. That's what it says in Micah 6.8. And related to this, we ought never to call evil good in our attempts to defend God or to evaluate the circumstances in which we find ourselves. So what is the context of this? Verse 10 
God saves those who are righteous as his people. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. Upright in heart parallels the description of David himself, that he's a, a man of God. Not perfect, but someone who belongs to God. And then verse 11 speaks of God's character. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. That phrase, God is a righteous judge, I think should call to our minds the statement in Genesis 18 where it says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? God's character is not in question. God will do what is right. And a God who has indignation every day, the object is not specified, but in context, I think that we can understand that the object is indignation against sin. That's what it is that God has indignation against. Just a point of application. Are we indignant against sin, particularly in our own lives? Or do we say, eh, I messed up. If God is indignant against sin, that should affect our attitude toward it as well. So not only do we cry to God, evaluate ourselves, seek vindication, but we also need to wait for God's justice. We see this in verses 12 through 16. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Verses 14 through 16, I believe, are speaking of the one who is falsely accusing of the sinner. 12 and 13 are talking about the judgment that God prepares. What's David saying? God is already angry against sin. It's not a question of, is this something that God has to be stirred up to? God is already angry against sin. What two things do we see here? God's anger is conditional on lack of repentance. Verse 12, if a man does not repent, that's the condition. Think about Nineveh. Jonah goes to speak to them. Forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. What's the implied condition? Unless you repent. And there's a variety of passages that basically God says, if I've determined evil against a people and they repent, then I will forgive them. If a nation that I've been blessing turns away from me, they can't expect that I will have, they will have my blessing forever because they've disobeyed, they've rejected me. So God's anger in this context is conditional on a lack of repentance. David is calling out to that in verse 9, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. So there's two possible outcomes. The wicked do not repent and they face God's judgment, or they do repent and they find God's mercy. And certainly we should all be thankful for that second possibility of these two outcomes. But God's justice connected with his anger is certain. Look at the language here. He'll sharpen his sword. He's bent his bow. He has deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. If we, again, if we take an attitude towards sin that says it's no big deal to God, God takes it lightly, this is the language of war, of obliteration, of destroying something. God does not take sin lightly. So we need to wait for God's justice because God is already angry with sin and because the sinner deserves God's anger. His life is full of sinful thoughts. Verse 14, he travails with wickedness, he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. Why do I say that this is talking and transition to the back to the if a man does not repent, the man that's in question in verse 12? Because God is not one who conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. Verse 15, not only does his is his life full of sinful thoughts and actions, 
mischief, lies, and so forth. Verse 15, his schemes will be his own undoing. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own pate. It's the idea of a, a guy who says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig a hole in the road and lie in wait as a robber and people come by and they avoid it and he goes to check where it is and he falls into it himself. The guy who goes and he says that I'm going to go and attack people and he loses his footing and he himself is the one who is injured, who is harmed, not the people that he was seeking to attack. God is saying that he can use their own schemes against them. So we need to wait for God's justice. God's justice, God's vengeance, if you will, is more complete, more accurate, and far more powerful than any of our attempts to seek our own revenge. We're reminded of that in Romans chapter 12. And what is our final response to all these things? To praise God. Look at verse 17. I will give thanks to the Lord according to His righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Praising God for His righteousness has a number of possibilities, but I think at least two are in view here. God vindicates His people... He says, despite what all the people around you may be saying, you belong to me, you are righteous because of what I've done for and in you, you are my people. And he also punishes the wicked. God is, stands ready to do that, which is the reason that David feels so confident asking him to do those things. Why praise to the name of the Lord Most High? Because he's the only God who's worthy of it. All other gods, you look at the Old Testament, what are the picture of the gods of the nations? Their representation is an idol that can't speak or hear or move. Their true nature is demons who at God's wishes are bound in chains for eternal judgment and can do nothing about it. So even though we easily mock the idols, maybe we say, well, the power behind the idol, God can control and bind and destroy that as well. What are the con conceptions of the people of the world about their gods? This is my God for my city, region, nation, but he's only my God for this area. They step outside of that, okay, now it's the God of the hills, the God of the valleys, the God of the forest. Stay in your own territory because your God only covers part of the earth. What's the God of the Bible? The God of the Bible is a God who made everything, who controls everything, who alone is worthy of praise, not only because of his character, but also because of the way that he behaves toward his people. So what might it look like to pray this passage? God, I know I'm a sinner, but I didn't do this sin that I'm accused of. I've been wrongly attacked. Deliver me and accomplish justice on my behalf. You are angry with sin, but you have been merciful to me, a sinner. Please do what is right, that I might praise you more. And so if we had to sum up all these things, how could we sum it up? In a world that is full of injustice... Seek justice from a God who is powerful and just. Let's go now, if we would, to our time of prayer.
and seek to pray these things together.